The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. On this episode of Newt's World, during the pandemic, as the shutdowns prevented businesses from operating at full capacity, the federal government stepped in to assist small business owners with loans to help them stay afloat. The Small Business Administration was responsible for distributing the funds for the Paycheck Protection Program known as the PPP. The Paycheck Protection Program was initially a $350 billion program funded by the $2.2 trillion CARES Act, which was signed into law by President Trump on March 27, 2020. However, a week ago, the New York Times reported, quote, since its creation last year, the Paycheck Protection Program has dispersed $780 billion in forgivable loans to fund 10.7 million applications. With this volume of money being distributed by the Small Business Administration through approved financial institutions, there was bound to be some fraud. But what you're about to learn is truly shocking. This funding, meant to help American-owned and American-run businesses during the pandemic, also went to Chinese-owned and Chinese-invested companies, both in the United States and elsewhere, to the tune of $419 million. My guest is Emily Delabriere, co-founder of Horizon Advisory, and she and her co-author, Nathan Pekarsik, have released a report detailing how this happened. One of the reasons we called you is we got involved in looking at the Small Business Administration and the Paycheck Protection Program which ultimately 
who gave away $419 million to Chinese companies or Chinese-owned companies. And you did a lot of work on this. You've released a report detailing how this happened, which we will have on our show page. But when did you first sort of sniff out this idea that there was something going on here? One of the big differences we see is not only China's history versus that of the Soviets, but also the degree of integration in the global system today. And because of that, China's ability in a model that you know, may not have worked in the past to take advantage of international resources and in doing so to potentially change the outcome that can be expected of its own model. So based on this as an overall framing and then sorting through Chinese strategic discourse, what we found over and over and what we found in particular at the beginning of the COVID pandemic was a line of argument that calls for taking advantage of global crises, of moments of global shock or dislocation to leverage China's relatively insulated government-backed approach in order to secure international resources that might be depreciated, in order to capture market share that might be up for grabs, and just you know, broadly to use the global dislocation and inattention to further China's strategic ambitions. What we also saw looking at actually the 2008 financial crisis model was that China is adept at very intentionally not only taking advantage of the moment of global crisis, but also taking advantage of the responsive investment, including recovery investment, that countries like the U.S. issue. So you know, when the U.S. in response to either COVID or a financial crisis goes about investing in infrastructure or giving out recovery loans, Chinese entities are there to be the ones building the infrastructure or supplying the basic inputs for infrastructure or receiving recovery loans. So based on this, when the U.S. government released the list of Paycheck Protection Program recipients this summer, it was an enormous list. We went through a sample of them, of about 20,000 companies, and looked for Chinese-owned or significantly Chinese-invested companies that may have received the loans and who they were, and what their ties were to the Chinese system, and how much money they got. And as you mentioned, we found a really non-trivial sample of over 125 Chinese companies, including state-owned companies, and government-invested companies, and companies tied to China's military and military-civil fusion system, benefiting from this program that was intended to help out U.S. small businesses. To what extent, though, were they simply legitimately taking advantage of a program the way we had set it up. Oh, 100%. It's not that you know China broke the U.S. law here, or these companies broke any laws. It's that, and this is you know, pretty typical of the U.S., and in ways that you know sometimes are in our interest and sometimes are not, that you know, we as a country sought to disperse money and do so in you know, as quick a way as possible and didn't put up safeguards because it doesn't, you know, as a system, seem to cross our minds that a recovery investment program could actually be used as a part of a competitive ambition to take advantage of our system. I'm thinking about putting together a paper on, on true corruption, which just doesn't strike me it necessarily is. Washington State sent $900 million in unemployment payments to Nigeria because several Nigerian cyber gangs had figured out how you could apply and so they would go and hack somebody's social security number 
and then apply as that person. And they had people from as far away as Florida who were getting unemployment checks, except the person wasn't in Florida. The check was actually ending up in Nigeria. And in California, which, of course, is a much bigger state, we think that they lost $32 billion in false unemployment claims. Largely, though, unlike Washington State, which the Nigerians found, largely to criminals who are in jail, who worked out systems where they would have their girlfriend or boyfriend go pick up the checks, and they would track down false names. And a lot of cases, they weren't false names. The most recent example was the Boston bomber got $1,400 in jail while appealing the death penalty. So there's something out here that's peculiarly American in throwing money around on such a scale that, you know, and I want to approach it from the other side, which is all of these recipients are crooks. I mean, you know, and it sounds to me like in the case of the Chinese, they weren't being crooked. They were doing exactly what the system asked them to do, and they happened to be legally eligible. Is that a fair statement? That's exactly fair. There were not safeguards put on the program that would have prevented this. The spirit of this program was to provide capital to players who couldn't receive capital anywhere else. So to have a you know, Chinese state-owned company or state-backed company receive these loans definitely goes against the spirit of the program, but by no means the letter of it. So this was entirely licit. But so as you look at all this, since you have a pretty good sense of both sides of the equation, as long as they're integrated into the world economy, is it practical to write laws that would say, this doesn't apply if you're not an American, or this doesn't apply if you're companies? Because in a lot of cases, my guess is they actually had companies physically in America. Yes. So you know, these were U.S. headquartered companies. The distinction is, though, so for example, the companies on this list that are state-backed or owned by Chinese state-owned players, they have sources of capital elsewhere. There's no reason U.S. recovery funding should be bailing them out. I think two key points are here. The first is that in some cases, these are companies tied to the Chinese military or Chinese military civil fusion system. This is a U.S. adversary. And so, yes, it seems practical and necessary for there to be language written in that a company that's owned by an entity that the U.S. Department of Defense has identified to be tied to the Chinese military should not be receiving U.S. recovery funding. And then the other point is just, you know, if we follow the chain of this money, some of the recipient companies are invested in or owned by the Chinese state. And in some of the cases, they also are donating money to the Chinese government COVID recovery program, which means that because money is fungible, U.S. recovery funds are going albeit indirectly, to subsidizing the Chinese government and the Chinese government COVID recovery investment, which, you know, maybe is all well and good if we're in this cooperative kumbaya world of COVID recovery, but the counterpart we're dealing with here, China, is using COVID as a competitive opportunity, was stockpiling PPE at this point, was doing precisely the reverse of cooperating in response to the pandemic. So while it's certainly difficult to... You know, write in the careful language that might be necessary to put in safeguards for this kind of money. And while it's certainly difficult to have the kind of vetting that we might need to actually track down which are Chinese-owned or invested companies, it's very possible. At a first order, it's not that difficult. And this is also, I would argue, that this kind of safeguarding and vetting 
is not only necessary and valuable for something like Paycheck Protection Program, but also for investment in scientific and technological companies, money going for U.S. innovation, other preferential policies or tax credits or other programs that are fundamentally part of efforts to foster a U.S. industry, U.S. science and technology, and compete in the global system. So, I mean, to some extent, I guess you could actually have a registry, if you will, of Chinese-owned companies. And it might be actually smart of us to do that anyway. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And it would be smart of us to do. And this is also something where there's just a huge information gap and there's so much information fragmentation. So like the federal government needs this, but local governments need this just as much, if not more. And it's something where simply having a database led by the federal government would be a relatively low lift thing that could have outsized effect for all parties within U.S. governments. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes Ryan Blake. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It seems to me that privacy rights of Chinese-owned companies are inherently different than the privacy rights of American-owned companies inside the United States. And therefore, we could make a condition of operating in the U.S. that you have to register so that we can track who you are and what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, do you see them in that sense as an inevitable long-term adversary? Yes. China sees us as a long-term adversary. And 
And Beijing is very deliberately and very explicitly competing to overtake or leapfrog or one-up the U.S., however we want to put it. And it seems to me inevitable that if another party is trying to compete with us, then we in turn have to compete with them. It's a great line from Trotsky who says that you may not care about war, but war cares about you. And in that sense, if if the other team is determined to compete, by definition, you're in a competition. Precisely. The second they're not passing the ball, they're trying to shoot. That's a very different dynamic. To what degree do you think they may have done this deliberately? That's a more difficult question. So there are a number of Chinese subsidy-type programs that involve collecting information on international law, for example, or U.S. litigation practices and intellectual property protection practices that, and I'm saying this as an example because what they do is that they create a corpus of information for Chinese companies that can potentially allow them to circumvent or take advantage of U.S. policies simply by making that information and that kind of almost advisory input available. It's possible that if there wasn't some sort of program for information sharing, there was at least guidance that publicized within China that this program was available. That doesn't necessarily seem like the most probable answer. I think it's more probable that this program was there, it was in companies' interest to take advantage of it, and so they did. And that in this particular case, it wasn't a guided, coordinated effort. In other cases of taking advantage of U.S. recovery investment, like, for example, the role China played in U.S. infrastructure construction after the financial crisis. I think you actually do see more intentional Chinese government support for that effort, including in the context of preferential policies for companies going out to build infrastructure abroad. But that's a different story and one where there's more time and there's more of an apparatus already available. Are we seeing a similar kind of long-range strategic thinking when we, in our pursuit of trying to reduce carbon from cars, when we cheerfully start talking about electric cars as our future, isn't it in fact the Chinese who have the huge advantage in all the elements of production for electric cars? Yes, absolutely. All the way along the electric vehicle industry chain, Beijing has pretty much global control. When you start with like the critical mineral inputs, so cobalt and lithium and graphite, China is the dominant international player. And then all down that industry chain, moving into fuel cells and then into batteries, Beijing is just positioned to win. And we're focused very much on the farthest downstream, which you know is a function, needless to say, of U.S. innovative and technological capacity. But what it means is that we are building a foundation on Chinese inputs, and therefore that we're dependent on China for this new industry that's increasingly going to be the dominant one on the roads. And of course, the next beat is that China is also building now electric vehicle brands that are intended to compete with U.S. and other international ones. So you end up with, they're a half generation or more ahead of us in the means of production. We're adopting a policy which maximizes their relative advantage as we try to get away from fossil fuels, which is our relative advantage. So it's almost if you had designed this as a Chinese strategic planner, you could hardly get a better policy fit from a Chinese perspective. I mean, am I missing something? That's precisely it. That's the perfect framing of it. So I have a hunch you're going to be really busy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because they're not going to go away. 
They're going to be a very serious competitor. They have a huge advantage over us in strategic planning. We have a huge advantage over them in opportunistic adventurism. And it'll be interesting to see over a 50-year period which works, you know. Yeah, it's also, it's clearly not an accident that, for example, the next generation of automotive development is one where China is positioned to have advantage. And that's because China has for decades targeted what they call emerging industries and has targeted their entire industry chains beginning at the necessary inputs. And it's what we're seeing in semiconductors, but we're also poised to see the same in other renewable energies, industrial internet systems, all the things that we talk about as the part of the next industrial revolution. I mean, didn't Xi Jinping very openly, it wasn't secret, laid out an entire plan for the next 20 to 30 years and said, these are the industries we need to dominate. Yes. And the Made in China 2025 plan comes out in 2015 with a set of industries. Those themselves aren't new, and they date back to, for example, the medium long-term development plan of 2006. And the degree of continuity and long-term planning that you get when the plan for 2006 to 2020 then leads perfectly into the plan for 2015 to 2025, and then in turn into the new plan to take us to 2035. And they are marching very carefully along a competitive strategy that is framed around leapfrogging the U.S. Yeah, and I don't think I've seen any parallel counterpart, even at the level of saying this is what the Chinese are doing. I mean, it's kind of like we're cheerfully bumbling along, and they're over here working methodically. I don't want to pretend that the Chinese don't have huge problems, including demography, oddly enough. But I do think that there's a formidableness to their focus. And I also think the degree to which we've allowed our education system to decay is one of the largest advantages the Chinese have, because we're just literally not going to be able to produce enough people to compete with them. Yes, exactly. And I think that also captures the asymmetry of strong industrial foundation from the Chinese side versus you know, the cutting-edge innovative capacity from the U.S. side. We are producing you know, the brilliant minds, but that you know, entire army, if you will, of engineers and of people with strong vocational skills and advanced basic capabilities is not necessarily coming out of our education system. And China's entire competitive approach rests on taking advantage of both domestic and international innovative resources, and then competing for their application and for their scaled application. And that's what today's tech race is about. But if we're not producing the scale, we can't do anything about it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Well, we want to stay in touch with you because I think you're doing some of the most interesting thinking. And I really appreciate you taking the time to sort of give us an overview from a totally different angle. I hope as you produce new studies and new research, you'll stay in touch and give us a chance to occasionally educate our listeners by dropping back in and seeing what you're thinking. I would love to. Thank you for having me. Thank you to my guest, Emily de la Bruyere. You can read Horizon Advisors' report on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, 
Listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.